the way AI fits into my workflow is that I think of it as like a posh Google search. I still then draw because I love the yeah. act of drawing. What always wins is the path of least resistance. We've always had that uh, balance of creative and technology. I'm sorry, but isn't this just the most amazing company <laughs> to work for? Carry on. Uh, <laughs> we found out we could actually reduce our render time by up to 10 times by using the GPU technology. Always take a swing because you are more than what your job title or job description might be. Welcome to Beyond the Frames, the media and entertainment industry insiders podcast. Uh, we're here today at uh, Blue Zoo Studios. I'm super excited because if anyone knows me, you know I love animation. And I'm here to speak to Tom Box, uh, co-founder of Blue Zoo. How's it going, Tom? Yeah, very well. It's all, all good, thank you. It's lovely to be on the podcast. Well, thanks for coming on board. I mean, I, um, I'm so excited, honestly, because... Uh, I'm so familiar with your shows, the stuff that you guys have originated yourself, but also the, the IP that you've adapted to children's television. Um, I'd love to get into some of those productions, mm. but for everyone's benefit, it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about the, I guess, the history of Blue Zoo, because you're an independent animation studio. Yeah. You've won loads of BAFTAs. Uh, you've been um, voted and won several times in a row best uh, studio to work for uh, in television. Yeah. So that sort of thing for an entertainment company that is still purely independent is a real achievement. So congratulations on all of that stuff because that you. speaks volumes about the culture and your impact in the industry. You also uh, established Animation UK, which is a game changer for um, uh, the UK animation industry and VFX industry. Um, so tell us about the genesis of the company. Yeah, so it started 23 years ago when uh, I was studying uh, computer animation at Bournemouth University. And I think in our final year, we had some previous alumni come along and say, hey, we've started a company. And they showed us what they'd done. And then one of uh, the students in our year, Ollie Hyatt, and his friend, uh, Nicholas Sims, they said, oh, we think that looks fun. I think we could, we could do that. And I think we could do it better as well. So they sent an email out to the entire year and they said, uh, who fancies starting a company? And I was like, yeah, I can do the technology side of it. And uh, uh, got a family, a bit of a, a small loan. I think it's about 40 grand back then from a family friend who we used to buy the, the kit. And uh, yeah, we started a, started a company in our final year at university. Wow. And it was a, a very fortunate timing because it was just when you could do computer animation at home for the first time you're using kind of I think 3D effects graphics cars at the time when just a few years before you'd have had to get a mortgage to get silicon graphics workstations it's the first time you could run Maya on Windows um, and it was also when Freeview was starting in the UK so there was this kind of like lovely window of opportunity where you could run a bedroom animation studio without having huge investment and also there was a, a huge boom in kind of cont content demand from all of these channels so it was very fortunate and our, our first um, client we got from going to our degree show was a producer from the BBC who was like, we're looking for some uh, content to be made for one of our new channels. Would you be up for doing it? We're like, yeah, sure. We don't have any contacts in the industry at all. Um, and uh, that channel turned out to be CBeebies and we ended up making 200 episodes of a show called Blue Cow, which was our first project. And it set us on that on that course of making content, a lot of it in the children's kind of domain. And uh, 
I think critically that's in that first two years, that's when most companies fail. So that kind of saw us through that, that kind of most turbulent time. So that critical commission combined with, I guess, the exposure that being on CBBS, which was a new venture for BBC at the time, a new launch and the expansion beyond the typical cable network to Freeview. So it's kind of like a perfect storm of distribution, demand, and your abilities. And I guess a bit of naivety on your part, right? Because you yeah, we didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we've we've always had that uh, balance of creative and technology, uh, and having that mix of the four of us when we started I was the more technology one Adam's like amazing at kind of directing and then Ollie's ideas and Nick was more um, marketing and she's since emigrated to Australia after a couple of years so now it's the three of us and we still own and run the studio um, but it was that kind of really uh, seeing how we could use technology to solve problems kind of both visually creative with the combination of technology so as an example when we did Blue Cow we had no render farm, but we had to make 200 five-minute episodes. So we figured out in Maya how to do kind of 2D animation in Maya and then use hardware rendering. So kind of GP rendering the entire series back before anyone, you know, was doing GP rendering. even mentioned the words GP rendering. And we, so we did, we rendered everything on the graphics card back in 2000, like 15 years before yeah. <laughs> it caught on. And that, so it was really just seeing how we can use technology to solve those creative problems. And being in that mindset of being fresh to something, n none of you were sort of thinking, well, this isn't how it's done because, you know, you didn't come from, obviously you trained at university, but it's not like you had a studio environment or the way productions were run that made you go, oh, well, we can only do it this way and we need a render farm and so on. Yeah, so I think that's... Uh, we've always really kind of stuck with that ethos of if someone says that's just the way it's done, that's a kind of bit of a red rag to a ball for us. It's like, well, we're going to see if there's another way. There might not be. There might be. There's only one way to find out. Uh -huh. And we've always really tried to kind of celebrate that that ethos of not just sticking to the, the status quo, which resulted in kind of Animation UK being born when Ollie was like, we're losing a lot of work. I'm going to try and fix that. Everyone was like, you're wasting your time. And... Yeah, that, that resulted in the UK uh, animation tax reliefs. But that's a prime example of everyone goes, that's not the way you do things, sorry. And we're like, well, we're going to see if there's a slightly different way. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because we have a global audience on this podcast and not all of them will be aware about of what Animation UK is. So tell us a little bit about the organization and why, why it's been so important to the industry. So I think back in uh, was it 2007, we were pitching for shows uh, and then we weren't hearing back uh, and hearing they'd gone into production in other countries. And we were like, well, we would have liked to have made that show. And when, when asking the, the studio why we didn't, they're like, oh, you're too expensive. It's like, well, you haven't even asked us for a quote. <laughs> so that's, and, and they're like, well, but we can get it made cheaper in Ireland or Canada or anywhere with tax relief. So they, it was a presumption that I'm not even going to ask a UK company to, to make it because I know they'll be so much more expensive than uh, another company with with uh, tax credits. So Ollie uh, said, I'm going to do something about this because it plotted a graph of the content being made specifically in children's TV as well and animation, how important that was for um, not just from our, uh, our the economy and, the, and our indus industrial kind of sectors, business uh, strength and future, but also from a more of a 
ethical stance of our children will just be watching kind of American imports, which, you know, is not great for your, for your country's culture and so forth. So it's kind of a balance of that. And he is like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what we can do to change it. So he collaborated with a few different people in the industry. Um, and he, I think he originally went to try and see the treasury. And they were like, uh, no, you, we, we don't talk to people like you. And so he, he was like, how can we do this? So he basically figured out the best way to get in is speaking to all the MPs, but it's hard to go through the front door. So he kind of went to all the different surgeries around the country for their, their Friday surgeries and just found animation studios in different um, parts of the country who, with, who had MPs and said, look, the, your local animation studio might not survive because of this issue. How can we get that? So at the time, my local MP was Vince Cable. So he went to see him and uh, he said, what you need to do, you need to hire one of the big four accounting firms to uh, put together a proposal and say, how this is going to be of net benefit to kind of the UK economy, how it's going to bring money into the country, not actually kind of reduce or cost the, the government anything. And so Ollie was like, right, well, we need to 50 grand to pay for this report. And then he went around kind of all the different companies and he got a lot of responses kind of saying, oh, you're wasting your time. This is 2008, we're in the middle of our biggest recession ever. Government's not going to uh, help out. But he stuck, stuck with it managed to work with um, a lot of other companies and raise that money, got the report made, and that uh, demonstrated how much it would bring to the UK economy. Uh, and, uh, and that resulted in Animation UK being created, which is now kind of a separate, separate thing. And yeah, that resulted in the uh, UK uh, animation tax reliefs being introduced uh, a few years after, and that's resulted in thousands and thousands of jobs being created Absolutely. and changing the scene of the uh, UK animation. Yeah, I love that story because it just uh, is so inspiring that uh, if you persevere and don't accept, you know, the, the doors that get shut, you can bring about real change. And what was motivating by the sounds of it, what was motivating Ollie there wasn't just the survival of your business, although there was a key part of it, but it's many other businesses. So it's actually, you know, it's the opposite of being competitive. You know, there are other animation studios in Britain, in London, that would be pitching for the same jobs that you would be, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's helping all of them uh, thrive. But uh, there's also a wider impact on the community and culture of animators in the UK. If, if all of them ended up leaving for a place, for a country or a, a, a location that was, um, you know, that had better incentives, than the UK at the time, then what does that do for the you know the creative culture in in Britain, right? So there's a that that has a big impact as well over time, yeah. uh, uh, kind of erode. And I think the the UK has a worldwide reputation. It you know it really does punch above its weight in terms of the caliber of creatives and mm. talent we have in this country in terms of making content that gets seen across the whole world. Yeah, and that's. That, that doesn't just exist because it's there. You've got to feed it and nurture it. And that's really one of the things. As soon as you just think, oh, that's okay. We don't need to do anything with that. Then it will start to you know, disintegrate. And before you know it, that will be a, a long gone uh, memory of when our UK, was, when our country was uh, you know, the, the top of the world in terms of creativity. So it, it does have to be delicately nurtured. And that's what we spend a lot of our time doing through skills as well to make sure uh, the talent pipeline is there to continue that. And we don't have to 
kind of go to um, give up on the UK and go to other countries because the skills aren't in this country. Yeah, that that reminds me of the B Corp yeah. certification that's very prominent on your website that you guys are proud of. Yeah. Tell me about what B Corp means and how that's affecting the way you approach projects, the way you approach your culture in the in your, in your studio with your staff. And what's, how does it fold into the philosophy that has come from you guys as founders, um, you know, the early days, all, you know, including Animation UK and all the way to today? What, what does the B Corp thing represent? So really, I think because we're, we're kind of a creator-led studio, we've, we've always wanted to really do the best for staff. And one of my slight uh, frustrations has been all companies say they care. And those words are cheap. <laughs> Anyone can say they care. And what I think is important about B Corp uh, is because you have to prove it and not just say you do it, but B Corp's all about measuring what you're doing, measuring your impact on your staff, on the, the environment, on your local community, on your, you know, for us, our audience. And it's about um, measuring where you are, where you want to get to, always improving and being accountable to a third party. So every three years we're audited by B-Lab across 200 different metrics. And that not just shows us how well we're doing, but it gives us a, a, a guide and a framework and a roadmap of where we can do better and where we can go. So that's really important that it symbolizes in one logo what we're trying to do as a studio, which is really care and have real um, authentic impact that's not just some BS quote yeah. on a wall saying we care or with so there's some, some you know, external accountability yeah not just a corporate mandate of like oh every day we'll have an every year we'll have an away day where yeah. we paint some it's, fences and you know yeah and it's hard pizza. to it's hard to do I think people are very rightly of rightly skeptical of 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 corporations and companies when they say these things and B Corp really try and find the best way of doing it. And it's very hard to have a certification that works for every type of company. Mm -hmm. And when they failed, when companies haven't met that criteria, it's been taken away. Like uh, BrewDog was a B Corp and, and B Lab took it away from BrewDog because they fell short of those expectations. Right. And so they are, they're working on always improving their standards. So, so companies that uh, can't kind of like just Coasts. skim their way through yeah. yeah and every three years we go redo that certification and they increase the the threshold every year so you can't kind of be complacent or rest on your laurels you've always got to be pushing forward and trying doing the best for everything that b corp looks after and i think it, what's great about it is that it does look at so many different um parts of your company where you've got a lot of certifications that might look at uh, your living wage, uh, employee, in terms of how much you pay your staff or your sustainability. But B Corp looks, looks at the whole kind of gamut. And that's why I think it's so important and you know, we encourage as many companies as, as possible to be B Corps because we, we then work with B Corps because their um, supply chain's been audited. So it makes us uh, better because we know everyone we're using has been through the same mm -hmm. process. and. Mm -hmm that just helps society even more. Yeah, that's awesome. So you have always maintained a kind of, not just an independent spirit, but you, as an organization, you are still an independent animation company. Yeah. In 2023, what's it like being, you mentioned B Corp, yeah. I mean, you are, you know, 300 staff, you are kind of a corporation c compared to a startup in the early 2000s. 
how are you navigating that in terms of adoption of technology, staying flexible to the way you create, um, you know, ideate, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it's certainly, it never gets any easier. I mean, it's been fascinating seeing how the world's changed in the last 23 years since we started it. You know, when we, when we started it, the internet really didn't exist much or internet video didn't exist. Uh, you couldn't do payments online and now, you know, the world's changed and so therefore our studio has to change. I think that's the, the tricky thing, as you say, when you're a big company is steering that ship. Mm-hmm. And we find that um, staying um, experimental helps that by always doing little small experiments. Like we have our short form team that um, does like TV adverts and so forth. And because they're, those projects are a couple of weeks long, they allow us to you know experiment with new technologies like... Uh, Blender, for example, where we've used uh, Blender to make TV adverts now, whereas it's a lot harder to do that for a multi-million pounds uh, kind of uh, long-form TV series. But what? But why is but, that? Because when I look on YouTube, there are there are some amazing demonstrations of really high-end visual effects. Yeah. Sophisticated animation. There's there's every year you get a new film from the Blender organization that looks as good as any high-end TV production, if not, you know, uh, feature film production. So it leads me to believe like Blender's production ready and we're ready to go and it's so I think free. The thing with all of those are, you know, uh, amazing projects and we've got a great relationship with the um, Blender Foundation, but all of those are tech demos that have been designed to show off a tool set, which, you know, works brilliantly and they, they look amazing, but when we make a TV series, uh, a, like a long form production, it's not trying to utilize a set technology. It's just trying to tell Sweet. great stories in the most beautifully crafted way possible that you know we're, we're, we're all incredibly proud of. So that's where the two kind of diverge, that we have to have tools that work in, uh, in very kind of robust ways that have all the expression that our facial rigs uh, need. So for example, with the example of Blender, we've been able to use it in TV series, uh, sorry, in TV adverts with more uh, constrained needs. Whereas to actually have a, uh, a, a more of a, a tool set that fits a 52 episode kind of production where we need much more kind of rigorous, say face rigs, for example, we struggled with those tools. So we're currently doing R&D to resolve those things, but that's a long-term thing. Yeah. So it's about doing quick experiments to try and find where the, the 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 limits are with the tools and then seeing what we can do to resolve those limits then before moving it into kind of bigger projects where you can't suddenly backpedal because the technology is not quite as ready as you need. So you need a reliable pipeline. That's a principle that any animation studio can relate to, even the the larger ones, yeah. the from the independent ones through to, you know, huge VFX companies. Because you've got dozens if not hundreds of people working on a production you need something that's scalable something that's not going to fall apart yeah um yeah it's a combination of uh using tools people are comfortable with and trying to push forward to use tools that are uh, you know progressive and perhaps more efficient or allow us to do better quality i think a great example is when we back in 2015 we started doing um gp rendering for our tv series and at the time we were using Arnold and then we found out about a technology called Redshift uh, to actually render it all on, on GPU. And uh, we did some tests 
and we found out that we could actually reduce our render time by up to 10 times by using their GPU technology. So we, we rendered a whole episode uh, in, in Redshift rather than Arnold and no one could really tell which one was which. Oh, really? So at that point, we just switched. We didn't tell the client. They didn't need to know. To yeah. them, it was the... <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. They, they, uh, and, and that worked. And so back in 2015, I think we were one of the first studios in the world to use uh, GPU rendering technology to render a whole uh, TV series. Uh, and that stemmed from our those experiments again, making, um, doing our, our shorts program as well, which experimented with that technology, doing some of it in short form to, to test it kind of in, in more ways, then rolling it out in a, in a safe way that's not going to risk the company or client relationship. Yeah. And do you find those experimentations, they're more effective um, if there's an end goal in mind that isn't just exploring tech for tech's sake? The reason I ask is that if I remember the first time we met, it was during the pandemic, the, the right at the start of the pandemic, um, I was spearheading a accelerator program at IBC yeah. and I was really interested in using immersive tools like VR sculpting and, and animation to see if it can working that way could ease pain points mm -hmm. in a standard production pipeline, mainly because I hate modeling on a keyboard or mouse. I find it super unintuitive. So I was like anything that would be easier than this. And VR seemed to be something that could plug in, you know, plug into the system as it transpires in my experience, VR software still has a long way to go for it to be reliable, but you can plug it in certainly in concept art and maybe some of the real time animation side of things. But when we met, you yeah. guys were experimenting with that, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, a big geek and I love new technology, but in that I'm also like to see it in the most realistic way rather than the, the, the hyped up way. So I always, you know, really first see what, what problem is this trying to solve? Yeah. And I think that's some of the things where I've uh, struggled to see some of the proposed uses of VR and, and augmented reality, uh, as an example, I remember um, back in when we started started Blue Zoo, there was a, a demo of, uh, do you remember VRML back in the, yeah. <laughs> the late 90s? Yeah. And they had this demonstration on TV going, hey, in the future, you won't need to go to Tesco's audio shopping. You'll be able to walk down a 3D aisle and you'll be able to find a can of beans, look at it, read the label and click buy. And then it's like, even then I was thinking, it's a lot easier to click on a, click. a 2D button right. to say, and that's, and I still believe the same thing now. It's like, what always wins is the path of least resistance. 100%. Yeah. And I think a lot of technology hype conveniently parks that. <laughs> and so, so in entertainment and games and stuff, VR is incredible. But in terms of utility, in terms of utility is, yeah. it, is it actually creating a shortcut or is it making the user jump through more hoops? And no matter how impressive the tech demo is, if you're making a user jump through more hoops it's dead on arrival and that's the way we've always approached technology of seeing how is this actually going to help our staff mm -hmm. and maybe it's or how is it going to help our budgets but our budgets helps our staff because that makes the the ability to do more creative you know it helps our budgets but historically as in with the redshift as well when we're using that and we switched uh from arnold to redshift and you know reduced the size of our render farm we could have just said 
oh, that's going to save us loads of money. We can all chuck that into our profits, but we didn't. We said we can actually increase the quality of what we're doing here so that we're kind of playing more of a long game and yeah. saying we can increase the quality of a work and that will you know, really increase our reputation. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have the reputation we do now amongst, you know, in terms of, you know, notwithstanding all of the amazing artists we have using that technology, which it's all about technology on its own doesn't, doesn't do anything from an animation studio perspective. But I think doing those kind of things is what's built our reputation to where we are because we've been able to do, you know, incredible looking work for the budgets we've had yeah. and we've always pushed that but that's always been kind of artist driven but trying to give artists the best tools that allow us to create the very best work with the budgets given because you you never have the budgets you want so it's about finding the most efficient creative ways to to get to that end result yeah and that is probably the most valuable thing that a company can have that kind of reputation not just with clients and in the industry but the reassurance that you can give your the people who work with you or work for you, that that's your ethos, right? Like that when you yeah. find a more efficient way of doing something or a more artist-friendly way of doing something, yeah. it goes directly back into their experience as and creators. It, and with a, in a business sense, the only reason a client will use us and any company really is down to trust is that you trust what you'll do, what you've said you'll do. And that is critical. And that's really where that, that B Corp comes in as well, because B Corp's all about trust and showing, evidencing that we're saying what we're doing. And we didn't expect that to have an impact on our clients, but our clients, whenever we mention it, they're like, oh, that sounds great. Tell, tell us more about that. So I think it's from a client perspective, that trust is critical because, you know, when they hire someone, they could lose their job if they've hired someone who's kind of like just winging it and doesn't yeah. actually know what they're doing. Yeah. So that, that, that long-term trust is actually, you know, absolutely critical to us in terms of our, our business strategy for pushing forward and making safe bets and safe risks in terms of constantly pushing forward with technology, not being technically complacent because we've seen many com companies come and go when they have been a little bit too, too complacent. And that's not something that, we want to happen to us. Yeah, definitely the complacency side of things, you can see how um, if you don't pay attention and seize the potential opportunities, you could be left in the dust by you know companies that do. But on the flip side, is there also a risk if, you know, to someone who wants to start a studio today and looks at how quickly, say, AI can generate images and produce animation and take video input and convert it into a stylized look that might be a bit anime-esque or another style and puts all of their strategy into this new emerging tech do you think there's a risk of being on the flip side in, you know the opposite of complacent right being sort of like jumping on a bandwagon being all up on tech and thinking it is the magic bullet to to, to achieving what you guys have achieved i think that's one of the hardest things at the moment is navigating what is the the, the smoke and mirrors versus what is the reality especially when you see a lot of impressive technical demos and I think a lot of, you know, when it comes to tools like AI, there's been some incredible demos going, wow, this could, this could change the world. And then you play with it. And it's like, actually, it's, I, can't, I can't get it to make what's in my head. So, you know, from our point of view, where we've been approaching tools like AI is, well, we're using them to, to our advantage in the most kind of ethical way by using them as just as a communication tool. So we're not making, asking it to design something that's going to replace a character designer. We're just using it to try and uh, explore 
what's in our heads and communicate it as like using something like mid journey, for example, rather than using uh, Pinterest to build a mood board, right. using that to try and convey where, what, where that direction, that vision is, which is very hard to do any other way. So none of that actually ends up on the screen. It's just used as a way of ideating and arriving at something you can use to much better brief a character designer so we, we're kind of really approaching it in that way rather than seeing it as something where we type in make me an animation and some ai plops out the other side we, that's not what we're we're here for i'm totally with you there in fact just last week i was at an event in manchester um at a celebrating the launch of the new wacom range oh, yeah. of of tablets and i was speaking about um my process as a designer and a visual storyteller that I still use analog tools, you know, ink and, and mm. pencil on paper, um, but I also use my Cintiq um, and I use VR for sculpting and I'll use things like Omniverse and Unreal Engine to render it. It's all in service of an idea that I have and I combine these tools. Sometimes it is a, a pencil drawing or textures that I've created on, on in the analog world and scan them in into something like Omniverse to get a particular effect. Or it's a chain where I draw on paper, then refine it in, you know, digitally in, in 2D on, on ink and then use that in, in 3D. But the way AI fits into my workflow is that I think of it as like a posh Google search. Because yeah. when I'm pulling my reference together, say I was drawing a character wearing a trench coat and a hat and a sort of film noir kind of illustration, I don't have those memorized to hand. I don't know how folds work, yeah. you know, automatically. So of course, my I'm in the habit of Googling what does a trench coat look like from different angles. But now with AI, I can do a much more specific search and I just use it as an image search, like a posh Google search. I still then draw because I love the act of drawing. I still like that process. It connects me with the yeah, art. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, where that, just that passion comes through. And I think what, what annoys me is people's obsession with talking about AI and writing scripts and stuff. It's like, what? It's not good at that. Why, why does everyone keep on talking about that? And then when that's what you want humans to be doing those jobs, because when it comes to our job, we're, we're making stories that audiences love. And the reason audiences love it, because it resonates on a human level yeah. in an unpredictable way. And when you know companies make things that are very predictable and formulaic, they don't last long. You see with films at the moment, when yes. you know, they're making so many sequels that they're, they're boring audiences. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest things that was hopefully relieve people that AI will find it very hard to replace is authentic kind of that lived experience storytelling of me knowing, me telling a story that someone else is going to resonate with because at the end of the day, all an AI is a, is a statistical probability machine exactly that. that will copy an existing formula. And yeah. storytelling is the opposite, opposite of, that. of that. It's making something that keeps the viewer guessing where AI is doing the opposite of doing the most predictable thing. And that's where I think that 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 kind of discrepancy of is where people say, oh, AI, AI is going to change that. And it's like, well, it by definition, it's going to really struggle to because of that. Indeed. And in machine learning, by its very definition, it is um, it is derivative, right? You've given it a large data set. And as you say, it's really a game of probability and statistics at play. Now, if I, if I just put in a word, like an apple, yeah. it's going to go through and randomly pick from the millions of apples that it's got as its frame of reference and give you that. Yeah. But the more keywords I put in, the more I can skew the results, right? I can weight the results by saying oh, it's an oil painting of an apple and needs to be in this color and et cetera, et cetera. But it is still derivative of what it's been trained on. Whereas I'd like to think that human beings are a lot more than 
what they've been exposed to through their history of you know of existence right all the things that you subconsciously draw on when you're developing a show or you're involved in a project yeah it is an amalgamation of some of your life life experiences but there's a lot more to what what's going on with you today that goes into it right and that's what excites us about being a studio and bringing all these different creative cultures backgrounds experiences taste together because that's that makes new stuff that and that's what creativity is yeah. about and if everyone um had the same opinion it may be easy but it'd be boring in yeah terms totally of, and that's what you know every monday i meet um every new member of staff at blue zoo to tell them about uh, our studio and tell them about our ethos and so Wait, forth. Wait, you have a new member of staff every Monday joining? Yeah. You're growing that rapidly? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> and um, on that call, I talk through those, uh, our, our kind of values, I guess. But one of them is about, we're celebrating the fact that everyone's different. It's fantastic because if, if everyone was the same, it, there, there would be no creative kind of... Um, uh, ideation of bringing all those different things together and that's what we want to celebrate so we want to celebrate that everyone has their own take and have their own experience and then collaborate to make something that's hopefully stronger than the, the sum of those parts totally yeah as, as a sort of now I've never been a competitive person but I've definitely been a collaborative person my whole life I think where you get your energy from is often interacting with uh, sometimes it's like-minded people but often it's someone who t has, like you say, a fresh take on it or a completely different angle, or maybe they're from a different discipline yeah. and your natural response, you know, to take that energy and, you know, flip it around or respond to it in some way. And that's got to be what drives the story room, got to be what drives the, you know, development process. Without that, as you say, it'll just be very predictable. Yeah, uh, sort of and it's, it's about trying to encourage people to take those risks as well, because mm -hmm. otherwise you don't want to stick to the, straight and narrow do you, you want people to, to experiment to the size and yeah. and encourage that which is which is hard when you're in a, a big company with you know a, a big payroll each month to take those risks but we're we, you know we really do keep trying to do that and going back to your earlier uh you know question about how do we make our studio easier to steer it's i'm not going to lie it's very hard to steer a company of over 300 people quickly but the way we've we've done that is by um having those different pockets of teams and having those experiments having our shorts program and encouraging people to use those tools even if it doesn't go anywhere and finding all different ways of being of diversifying our, our work as well so we're doing our tv adverts we're making our own games running a, the youtube channels and uh, making our long-form tv shows to the and encouraging people to come up with ideas that hopefully we'll be able to kind of really grow into a show and then uh, profit share it with the creator and one of the ways we've done that recently for example is running a book a picture book initiative hmm. where we've asked everyone who wants to in the studio is to pitch in and come up with an idea for a picture book that we then work with a publisher to help them mentor kind of what works i'm sorry but this, isn't this just the most amazing company <laughs> to work for carry on uh, <laughs> And uh, and then, yeah, some of those were selected to take forward where we um, work with them to get all the uh, illustrations drawn. Sometimes artists in our studio have done that, sometimes it's been external. And then working with publishers to get those off the ground. And then hopefully we can make those into IPs and grow them, whether into a TV series. But it's, it's all about sowing as many seeds as mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. and to kind of see where it goes. And I think... 
back over the last kind of 23 years, I think that's one of the things that we've n seen the most is that uh, it's all about kind of getting out there. No one's going to come and find you. Right. And on that, that when we originally had our degree show that that BBC producer came to, we didn't have to go to that degree show because we already had jobs and everyone else had gone there to find jobs. But by being in that room that time, we happened to bump into that producer. And that's happened to be in the right place at the right moment, at the right time, which some people would say is luck. And it does come to luck, but you can engineer your own luck by trying to be in as many places uh, as many times where you might happen to bump into those people, which is easier said than done for most animators when they're happier behind a screen than yeah. you know out out in the real world but if you don't talk about your stuff who will yeah right? exactly so we've we've always kind of like forced ourselves and i think it's something we probably should have done a lot lot earlier but we've always kind of really forced ourselves to get out there and and i made a very uh uh a very i guess big decision earlier on when I, when i left kind of university i was still you know incredibly shy um, partly because I, I had speech therapy till I was about six, so I couldn't talk for my early years. And I made decisions saying, look, if I'm going to have to go and pitch to companies and go in a room in, term, in, in front of the, the big cheese and present, I'm going to have to get more confident. So I said, right, when anyone asks me if I'm going to come and present, I'm just going to say yes. And wow, worry about that's it. very brave. So since then, I've always, always done that. Why I'm here, Why you're here. <laughs> and that, and and now I don't get phased going in and talking to a room of 200 people because I've always just said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to worry about it. And I think that's such a critical part of path of that. What's led to that kind of yeah. success is by trying to embrace those things because it might go badly. It might not. There's only one way of getting through that, and then creating those chance interactions that might happen as a result of going to that event doing a talk yeah which otherwise i probably would have turned down just because it's nicer being in front of a screen than standing in front of a bunch of people you don't know and it's an iterative process right like how, how are you going to get better uh without doing it repeatedly and nothing yeah. nothing lasts forever right so you might mess up once twice but yeah. every time you get kind of get better at you figure out which bits you are more comfortable with now and which bits you've got to work on and that goes for like generating new business yeah how confident you are in throwing your hat in the ring with ideas. You mentioned picture books in the company. I imagine there are members of your staff that never thought that, you know, maybe they don't work in a typical creative discipline, but because they're part of the company, they might go, oh, I've got an idea. Yeah. Well, to give you an example, we, we run our, B, uh, our BZ Shorts initiative, which is our kind of short films program. And we've mixed it up over the years. And many of the times we've done it, we've just put a brief out to the whole studio and said, hey, we want to make a short film. The theme is using a game engine or whatever, and we want to make a, a story. And one year we did it, and we said we want to make a music video. We did a collaboration with Sony uh, to do a music video for Christmas. And we, again, we put the brief out to anyone in the studio. So, look, all you got to do is put together a three-page pitch document, and then we'll kind of blind judge it, and everyone in the studio will vote for their favorite. Uh -huh. And then um, one of our... Um, uh, one of our HR team, Katie Gascoigne, uh, won the pitch and was suddenly a music video producer, director, uh, and made that animation. And that resulted in her moving over to the creative team. And she's now a creative producer in our developments team. And that's for giving people those opportunities that on an everyday occurrence, they probably wouldn't get. And I think it's so important seeing what, what 
those different skills are encouraging people to to take those steps because katie didn't nearly pitch because she was like well i'm not gonna there's no there's no point in doing it i'm i work in the hr team but she did it and she's like well what have i got to lose and she ended up being a a music video director for it well amazing you know always take a swing because you are more than what your job title or job description might be yeah so you guys create long form stuff Mm -hmm. uh commissioned by broadcasters and streamers and so on you also develop your original uh, Mm -hmm. ip yeah and you've got uh you've adapted to the direct-to-consumer kind of youtube space with ip as well let's break some of that stuff down i'd love to hear about 23 years in what's your relationship like with commissioners because you you know earlier you mentioned um you don't just want to be um responding to um industry trends yeah. and just following the herd you you you're what's great about blue zoo as an independent is that you're always checking you know what's what's worth pursuing you know rather than just sticking to the norm or yeah. following a trend how does that work with clients who come to you and say we want a thing like this which is often what clients do um i think we always have to make sure it's with the the right fit and we're we would never take on a project to just because oh this would help pay the bills it's right. it's always to make sure that it's something our staff would want to work on otherwise you can take on a project and you think well it's going to pay the bills then your staff will leave anyway because they don't work on the project <laughs> all right we've just got this project to do now with no staff brilliant um but the way we've approached it is in terms of the long form we've always tried to balance it so about half of our projects are our own so we we've got a developments team that comes up with shows kind of and works with our, our different teams to work out what what not would just be a uh, a good show but also how we can make it kind of more profitable and sustainable financially in terms of being able to kind of monetize it afterwards um through you know all the mean all the ways uh, possible so would that be commercial opportunities in terms of merchandising or or do they yeah. take a step back so, and go what's the audience looking for and where does it align with you know, for example children's shows um quite often development teams need to overlay educational sort yeah. of um elements to make so, sure that it's it fits into curriculum. yeah so the way we've adapted to that over the last uh 23 years is by yeah by doing half the half the shows that are our ideas mm-hmm. and half the shows uh ones that are service work but working with the the best brands out there how we do like the adventures of paddington working with lego amazing and stuff. show yeah. so um but the way we with our own shows what we've done is we've adapted by um really stepping back and saying look we're being purely an animation studio making service work is a, a commodity it's very hard to actually have a really robust solid business there because you're just competing on margins with yeah. every other uh, company in the world most of the talent kind of moves between those studios anyway so it's what's really kind of different about your studio so what we've done is step back and actually looked at that entire kind of content machine from not just creating and cr- and creating the idea and producing it but actually monetizing it in the sense of licensing it to toys apparel books live shows so set up our licensing team we've also set up our, our digital team which runs our YouTube channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we take our IPs and then the developments team works with the licensing and the, the digital team who are making games, running the YouTube channels, 
and uh, the marketing as well, doing all the social channels to, to build up those kind of fan bases. So rather than seeing that as an afterthought, those are woven in from the very start to make sure that we're doing things in that's ways that's going to be able to reach as many audiences as possible. Yeah. And not uh, it's not going to make something that we like, but no one else does or doesn't actually reach people because we haven't engaged in the way that modern channels and audiences kind of work. So. Mm. That's that we've really tried to kind of shift ourselves in the modern way. So it's not just seeing, well, you know, we're just going to pitch our work to broadcasters, yeah. but we're also going to kind of experiment and with our YouTube channel, our YouTube channels, I think we've got about 12 different channels. Um, we can experiment with making content and trying content out direct with uh, audiences. So one thing we've done with that is we've created our own YouTube channel called um, Little Zoo where we've um, we can uh, put content we build the audiences up i think it's nearly half a million subscribers on there i think but that essentially is our kind of petri dish <laughs> of of test data yeah so we can create content on that and see if it works then we've got a guy who just does the analytics on youtube and yeah. sees the trends see what works i think we um, we're always very careful that we're uh influenced by that data not, but not driven, not driven. otherwise yeah. you just Informed. do make more derivative stuff you feel like hey right. everyone likes cat shows let's make a cat show yeah and then you miss it you show up and you're just another cat yeah. show <laughs> so then you have your own data then your own insights that can inform your development team maybe even trickle through to some of the collaborations you do with clients to sort of say hey we know in this segment that you're targeting it's not just the, the yeah. metrics that you have as a broadcaster but have you considered the audience insights does, does yeah, so the way, the way we look at it, where traditionally it's all about viewing figures, where mm -hmm. on YouTube it's all about watch time. And that's quite a different way of looking at things. So when we make uh, content on YouTube and try something out, what a lot of people who aren't familiar with it would say, okay, what are the viewing figures? And it's like, well, that doesn't tell you anything because when you put anything on YouTube for the first time, it might not get much traction. So what does tell you if it's working is the watch time. Mm -hmm. If people have watched, you know, fewer people watching of more it, of it, yeah. And then that's what we look at. So even though if it's got 500 views, but the watch time is like most people have watched it to the near the end. We're like, right, well this is working. Even though it's got 500 views, it's just a discoverability thing. So we have to look at the the, the SEO, the the thumbnail and stuff. Right. So it's really taking that a slightly different nuanced approach of what what are they liking kind of from a, a viewing perspective rather than just what the headline views is because it's it's a, a bit of an i guess a naive way of viewing it when that's it might just be the you know discoverability because in this day and age everything is about discoverability so you've got to work on that bit and then once you've got that plus the watch time then you're on to a winning formula that's great that's that's like you know, 101, YouTube 101 yeah. for anyone who who's might be considering putting their own show out there or just creating a new channel. And, and what's what's also amazing about that is that you can really see what the audiences engage with and what they don't. When when in a, a story, everyone's switching off, yes. which is you'd never get that for any other platform. No. And um, which characters perhaps might resonate more uh, if there's a famous thing of, you know, when they launched... The Simpsons back in the 90s, everyone assumed Bart Simpson would be the most appealing yeah. character. So they put all the marketing behind that. But of course, Homer ended up being the more iconic and yeah. more, you know, the one that people liked the most. But by the time 
they could change their stories and all that, you know, several yeah. seasons on before they could really make home of the focus. But YouTube, you can be much more immediate. And, and there's more of a business benefit as well, because what we find is that when we make a show and you put it on, on YouTube and it's viewed around the world, we can look at those trends and say, actually, this show is doing really well in South Korea. So let's then, with our licensing team, work with companies in South Korea saying, look, we've got all the data here. You can't argue with it. This show's doing really well. Do you want to you know, license this show because no one else has touched it in your country? You'd be the first. Mm -hmm. And so by using that data as part of that kind of business model, it creates a great cycle where you can actually you get that free kind of market data yeah. organically, which is, you know, which is nice. <laughs> so the, the indie spirit in me, the auteur in me, listens to what you're saying here, and I'm like, surely what's you know the future of blue zoo is to do away with any commissioned work and just be a direct to consumer because you're already making some great inroads on youtube and learning about your audience directly is that a naive kind of view on like what the ultimate north star is to to not have to do any commission work and just do your own ip and be direct to consumer only or do you think it's still beneficial to have multiple revenue streams like the client work the commercial advertising stuff and your originals it for us it's about working on the best projects and you know we we come up with our own ideas sometimes other studios come up with ideas that are you know amazing well obviously a lot more often than I do otherwise we'd be millionaires um <laughs> the uh we um but i guess what i'm trying to say is like the we want the work, we want our staff to work on the very best projects. Sometimes that's other people's projects. Sometimes it's our projects, and that creates a much more kind of diverse business model of not putting all our eggs in one basket. When you're trying to get your own TV show off the ground, it can take ten years, and if your entire business is dependent on that, and you've got a, a five-year gap, <laughs> then you, you, you need that spread. So I think it's really important for, for us to, you know, to, to spread those spread those eggs in different baskets. So I think as we've seen in the VFX industry, if your entire business is reliant on four clients, that's very dangerous. And yes. I think that's you know, part of the reason why I've seen so much, uh, you know, such a turbulent year in, in VFX is because those, those business models aren't very uh, diverse in their, their revenue incomes, which yeah. is, you know, the same could be said about platforms. If you're only yeah. going to be on YouTube or TikTok, mm -hmm. those tech platforms could change their yeah. terms as they did a few years ago for children's content, you know, with comments being turned off for all the good reasons and, you know, monetizations have changed and all that. Although it's, it's, it's still a great place for you to, to launch shows and observe and, you know, analyze shows. So what kind of reach do you have now with, you know, your combined YouTube activity? Um, I think our, well, our YouTube team generate, I think it's about 240 million views a month across all of our different YouTube That's channels. That's staggering. Is, you know, broadcasters would love to have that kind of engagement, wouldn't they? 240 million? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. But that does all go up and down. So that was, that, I think that was last month. And that's tradition. It goes up towards Christmas. Then it might go down in the new year. And again, YouTube may change its algorithms. So it's about making sure that, you know, we're doing games as well. So we've got many, we make all our games in-house. We've got our apps as subscription models. So there's a recurring revenue stream there. So it's, again, it's not our, our entire business plan. It isn't YouTube or, or Bust. Or even that, just you know, linear content because you've got yeah. interactive content. So all of these different functions that you're describing, the YouTube channels team, the development team, the long form production, short form, the Blue, Blue Zoo shorts, mm -hmm. some of the R&D stuff, like VR and, and, uh, uh, as a production tool. So all of that is outside, uh, sort of within the London 
office, is it? Um, well, we're we're kind of headquartered in London, but if you look around our studio today, there's probably about 15 people in, and that's you know we we operate a very relaxed hybrid work policy. But I think I think out of our 350 staff, I think it's hard to keep count of the current number of staff, but. Um, I think uh, about 20% of those are outside of the UK. Um, so we have freelancers kind of working everywhere. We've got some of our team in Dublin. Uh, we've also set up a studio in Brighton as well. So we can have a bit of a regional footprint. And in January, we're opening a studio in Lille in France as well. Amazing French talent. You know, we, we need to be in France. And it also helps um, with the tax reliefs as well. We can maximize that to really help. And that's about getting projects off the ground mm -hmm. easier because when you actually fund a show, you need to use, a, you know, sometimes 10 different funding pots to get it across the line. Mm -hmm. So being able to have a, being able to kind of co-produce almost or do our own co-productions uh, between uh, UK broadcasters and tax reliefs and French ones. So um, that all just helps us get a lot across that production line quicker, which makes our studio more kind of financially sustainable of making our own work rather than just being totally reliant on third parties, which is, you know, a bit more of a dangerous business model. Yeah, and there's phenomenal talent in, in France, you know, um, animation talent, rich history, amazing schools that turn out some yeah. amazing um, talent. Uh, on the YouTube, sp in the, yeah. your YouTube channels, uh, one of my favorite shows that you have is called Silly Duck. <laughs> and it's brilliantly titled because you get exactly what is advertised. You yeah. get a silly duck. And it, the animation style is brilliantly sort of anarchic, full of character. And everything you guys do is character driven, which is why I love your work so much. So tell us about Silly Duck. So Silly Duck came from... Um, it is... It is came from a place of really trying to work out how we can move with the times in the sense that audience demands from like YouTube has grown at such a pace and animation production speed hasn't. And we don't want to like be kind of cracking the whip saying to our animators, you've got a keyframe 20 seconds a day, otherwise we, you know, it's, we can't do it because we need to pump something out on YouTube once a week. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be that studio. So we're like, well, what other ways we are? Other ways can we be quicker? And previously people have said, oh, well, we can use real-time rendering. It's like, well, that does speed things up when it comes to rendering. But if you look at a production budget or a timeline, rendering's one tiny little slice where the bulk of that is animation is what takes obviously the asset build, yeah. but you're gonna need to build assets no matter what you're doing. So we really, really looked at the animation um, as part of that timeline going, well, what ways could we really reduce that but without compromising quality and still work making work that our teams are proud of making which is a a tricky one to do when you've got that triangle of kind of like time quality cost yeah, yeah. um so we looked at it from that perspective and we're like well could we do something which is using more kind of performance capture but then if you're using motion capture trying to um when we do cartoony animation and we have characters and silly duck being kind of like thrown across a room or something you can't really do that to a someone in a motion capture suit so it was like well how what what other ways can we do kind of cartoony animation so we're like we looked at puppeteering and we thought well could we use vr and the the kind of all the freedom you have with that with actually being able to immerse yourself in a virtual set but what if you could have a cartoon character in front of you that you could puppeteer but more than that 
what if we approached it like the shows uh, like that Henson's does, for example, with Dark Crystal or shows like Warhorse, where they have multiple people puppeteering it. But rather than having all that, having to get multiple people all in VR at the same time and have them all uh, kind of rehearse so they can synchronize it, what if one person could do that puppeted performance, but layer by layer? Yeah, so, do it in passes, right? Yeah, so go in and then you could, in VR, you know, meet this life-size kind of cartoon character and then the first thing you could do is um puppeteer its mouth up and down and then play that back and while that's playing back you could then puppeteer the eyes and then mouth and body mm -hmm. so we built a tool called mopo um and our r&d team in, in the studio kind of developed all that systems to make sure that it was all kind of um uh, all the, the the time codes worked and stuff because there's plenty of kind of ways of doing that in Unreal and stuff. But actually, if you want to use it in a production, you've, you've, you, it takes quite a bit of work to actually get something that you can actually make episodic content with rather than just a fun tech demo you can chuck yeah. online. Yeah, yeah. So we've spent a lot of time really working out those production systems to a point where we have a tool where we can make content. Does, so that, does the movement that's captured in VR go straight into the sequencer timeline in Unreal? Is that how you sync it? So when you've animated the duck's mouth, that's one track and sequencer. Then when you record again, it, it adds it to the same sequencer. Uh, you know, you know what so I mean you by kind of, it does it does require baking out into the sequencer. So okay. you can have different, so you can have different characters in the mm -hmm. sequencer. Mm -hmm. So it's a slight kind of uh, hybrid approach in that sense. Um, and that's what's taken a lot of that kind of engineering is working out the best way that allows that uh, freedom to play with stuff in the, in the sequencer whilst having it kind of fast to actually yeah. view it all in in live in a scene as well yeah. that doesn't have to then go out to the sequencer but the one of the reasons we wanted to do that was uh once we had that tool we we're like okay well how can we really uh test this out and the idea was with that system could we do could we make a show that really celebrates that puppetiness rather than trying to look at another show that you know, is, is designed to be keyframed and going, can we, sh can we kind of grab that keyframe show and shove it in a puppeteered yeah. system? Yeah, yeah. And that's the way a lot of technologies kind of retrofit. And we're like, we're not doing that because we've got a developments team. We can say, can you think of a puppet show that we could do in virtual production, but in this proof of concept show, could we do it? So using a really small team, can we get it from a script or idea onto YouTube in more, weeks rather than years it takes with traditional development so uh, the team uh, one of our uh, creatives alex smith came up with the idea of silly duck he did the voices he thumbnailed the 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 storyboards and he also did quite a bit of the puppeting as well in vr mm -hmm. and so with that you know we we it was off and on but i think if you were to add the actual time together I think we got from script to screen in probably about 10, 10 weeks. Wow. Um, and then we can put it on YouTube, see what works, see what doesn't. And, and we haven't spent millions right. making something and then put it in front of some kids and go, oh, they don't like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's really, again, trying to use technology to risk and experiment and have fun. And the team had a great fun making Silly Duck and it seems to have really uh, worked online as well. Yeah, so it's, it's got a fantastic sort of energy to it, which is this is where the tools really facilitate that kind of energy. And I think it's yeah, perfectly matched the concept and, le and leaning into it, exactly. Celebrating that it almost has a medium in itself. So yeah. digital puppeteering. Um, well, this has been fantastic, Tom. Um, 
I've learned so much about um, what it takes to be an indie studio today and what it takes to grow a company from you know the early 2000s when the landscape was so different to um, all the opportunities yeah. and risks and challenges you have now. Um, what's next for Blue Zoo? What are you excited? Because we're recording this in December 2023. What's what does 2024 look like? You know, what, what's what's Blue Zoo excited about next year? So we've got a lot of uh, uh, we we've been really building our studio up in terms of that bigger kind of content pipeline, and you know we're really excited about working more directly with audience as well, and working with broadcasters to 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 help that content as well. To no matter what platform, I guess it's it's about getting the content out there no matter what platform is and seeing that and seeing having that kind of uh more kind of um that feedback loop mm -hmm. and embracing that mm -hmm. um uh, we've got some really exciting shows coming out as well i've actually been doing some kind of show running as well on my show nice. which is which is the first time and that's that's been uh, uh, a fantastic experience so that that show will come out next year but i think are you what, allowed to tell us what the show's called not yet okay. <laughs> uh but it's um as a showrunner i I love the discipline of show running. I find it kind of ticks so many different boxes for me because I like so many aspects of the creative process, but I also yeah. want to... It's it's a preschool coding show. Oh. So trying to... Now, this is something we didn't get into, but I remember you would quite... I don't know if you still do this, but on Twitter, you would quite often post your little coding experiments. Yeah. I say little because they were short form content, not little insignificance, yeah, yeah, yeah. but little sh short form video loops that were kind of abstract and beautiful intricate themselves and i wouldn't know that they were produced by code because they were just so artistically sort of yeah that's so, so kind you of procedural art you procedural yeah. art exactly yeah. well i guess i did we didn't touch on it so far but i started more in uh software where i started a software company when i was about 15 writing internet chat software before internet chat was much of a thing so it didn't really go anywhere but then then you know uh, went to university and stuff and uh, got distracted by by doing um uh then the coding company that was was doing previously mm -hmm. um but i think that's it's all about just always staying curious and experimenting and like trying to trying to find time to do those experiments it's very hard when you're running a company mm -hmm. you have a family and so forth but it, it is it's so important to to stay curious and and not too precisely define your future i think that's one of the reasons why we're all always a little bit um vague on where the future's taken us as a studio because we're we're really kind of like um seeing where it goes and enjoying the ride and we've got a we've got a firm idea of kind of like the, the shows we want to make but we're constantly kind of um nudging the steering wheel on where that's going because i think if you have if you make too many plans you probably just have to rip them up so i think it's good just to to, to not look too far into the future but just have lots of different experiments different ways of working different clients and making sure that you're um you're always tinkering without going all in on on one thing so you can you can stay a bit more kind of dynamic and and that makes the the job much more fun as well rather than just doing the same thing for 23 years without coming up for breath <laughs> love that thank you so much and i hope you guys found it um interesting i certainly did i've been inspired by listening to tom over the last hour chat about uh what blue zoo have achieved what he's doing next year um so if you like this uh podcast 
give it a like subscribe and leave any comments any questions you have for tom or or me and um, look forward to seeing you in the next episode